What will you be known for? It's a big question. When your time on earth is done, what will people remember you for? What's going to be the thing that pops up in their mind when your name is said? The reality of this question is is a little vain because it kind of puts the emphasis on thinking about our lives. But it is a question which I would say drives a lot of people to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. This is the question that drives a lot of people to accomplish small things and great things. You know, we all would like to leave something behind when we're gone, whether that be the way we live and so our children and our grandchildren understand our heritage or whether that be in the field of science or academics. You know, everybody wants the next big discovery to be to have their name on it, the next breakthrough in medicine to have their name on it. What will you be known for? It's a question which drives a lot of people today. Everyone wants to leave their mark on this life, us included. So if we take that out of the personal question now and think about us as a church or an organization, the people called out, the people who are redeemed and who are saved, how would we think or ask this question to ourselves as a church? You, me, and everyone who would call CityGate Church their home church where they worship, We should ask ourselves, what will this church be known for? It's important for us to think through this question because if we do not, what we end up doing is we risk sort of aimlessly just operating and doing services and religious acts with really no guidance, no aim, no direction, with no intentionality. We're just sort of drifting along. We'll drift along aimlessly without truly knowing whether we are doing what we're called to do or doing what we are not called to do according to what the Bible says churches are to do. How would we know? What are we going to be known for? You know, we're almost three years old, but, you know, we don't want this church to be a fad or a phase. This isn't like a season of a life for this community where, you know, um, over the last 50 years, there's been four or five churches, I think, operated out of this building. Now, this is all done to God's glory, but we hope that this community called City Gate Church would be here until Jesus returns, doing the work that the church is supposed to be doing. But what will we be known for? How will people speak about us in our community? How do you speak about us as a church? Today, the two verses in our letter of Ephesians we're going to look at are verses 15 and 16. So we've learned before verses 15 and 16 about all the amazing ways God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have chosen us, elected us. We talked about God's plan of salvation for the world and how God's power and righteous ability allows that to happen through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then Paul changes, and he's going to talk about a prayer for the church in Ephesus. He says, I'm going to remember you in my prayers. And then we're going to, next week, we're going to cover what Paul prays for the church to have and to receive. But verses 15 and 16, we don't want to see it as just a transition. We want to see it as impactful because it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul never stops giving thanks for the church in Ephesus. He never stops praying for them for two reasons, he says. Because the faith they have in Jesus and the love they have for one another. So here's the big idea in these two verses. Churches are to be remembered, or churches are remembered for their faith and your love, both positive and negative. Churches are remembered for their faith and love. 
Paul does not cease to praise the faith of the Ephesian church. He's, he, just, he just goes for it and says, you are the faith that I want people to have. You have foundational, great, strong faith. And you have a love for one another. He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. So basically for the remainder of the service, we're going to look at the faith and love. That's what we're going to focus on. Faith and love. Two characteristics that we hope people remember us by. This would be our aim. This would be our goal. Whether you individually or in your family or a church as a whole, we want to be remembered for the faith that we have and the love that we show. The word faith, it's used throughout the Bible quite a bit. It's a couple of hundred times in the New Testament, I think. And Hebrews 11 really is the best definition for what faith is. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's some definitions then after that. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, here's an example. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This means faith is living in a hope that is so real that it gives to you, it provides to you absolute assurance. Faith equals absolute assurance. Not a little assurance, not a fraction of an assurance, but absolute, full, complete assurance. Which means then, if we think about what absolute assurance is to our lives, we can rule out what it's not. Faith is not wishful thinking. We got to go there first, don't we? The Christian faith, the Christian walk, what we believe as the church is not a wishful type of faith. It's not some wishful, longing for something good to come our way type of faith, type of way to live. Christian faith is certain. It is an absolute certainty that God will provide to us what he has promised us, an eternal relationship with him. It's with absolute certainty that he's made it possible. He's completed that work. He's working with us today. And eventually, we're going to see him face to face. We will live and worship with him forever. It's an absolute certainty of those things. Truth of faith is having absolute certainty about who God is, what he has said, and what he has done. Now, now this faith is quite scrutinized. A lot of religions are scrutinized, but specifically, Christianity gets a little bit of scrutiny because our faith is seen as some sort of unreal expectation or unreal impossibility that we believe in. We must remember the world considers, when I say the world, those who are not Christian, the spirit of the age, the, the way the normal world operates, the way we all once thought and once acted before we became Christians, it would consider it an impossibility that God created the heavens and the earth. The world thinks it's impossible. Our faith is, you're just wishing God did that. It's impossible. The world considers it impossible that God would reveal his knowledge and his will and his direction for our lives to us through an old archaic book. The world would say, man, if you just got rid of the Bible, I think the world would be a pretty great place. Why? Well, because it's just wishful thinking. I mean, there's no absolute certainty there. The world looks to those who have faith in God and only see this sort of naive group of people who are surviving on wishful thinking. You know, the Bible, all it really does is, is change him from a half glass empty kind of person to a half glass full. That's not true. 
And I know some of you, and that's definitely not true. But it's not wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. It's faith, absolute certainty in who God is, what he has done, and what he said he will do. So let's take those two then. Let's say, who is the true wishful thinker? Who is more wishful in their thinking? A person who has absolute certainty that everything came from nothing, which is the main narrative about how this world even is to be the place it is. That at some time in eternity past, there was nothing. Then just like that, there was everything. Who's more wishful? The person that thinks everything came from nothing or a person who believes that an all-powerful God created everything that we see? Sure, we can look to those in the sciences and they, we can say, praise God, they've taught us. Some people say science is against Christianity. We say, no, 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 no. Science reveals God's creation to us. That's the beauty of it. Science tells us about the world around us. Science does not point back to how things were created. If we put our faith there, if we think that is where absolute certainty is found in our science, what eventually science teaches us is that men and women are no different than the nature around us or the stardust that we claim we came from. If we put all of our faith and hope in this world and understanding our lives as we see them today and what is revealed through science, what, the, what we come to is realizing that you and I are no different than the ground that we walk on. We're just everything that came from nothing. Who is the more wishful thinker? The person who believes that the human mind is all we need, that we just need to continue refining our mind and going to new levels of intellectualism and being more enlightened about how we operate? Or the person who believes that the human mind is corruptible and in desperate need of a renewed direction? It is the human mind which creates modern medicine, helping us to restore our bodies. We like that. We appreciate that. But see, if our absolute certainty about this life is in the human mind, let us never forget it's that same mind that also created the concept of Auschwitz, exterminating Millions of people who, thought to, who were thought to be less than. Is that where we're supposed to find absolute certainty? One more, who is more wishful in their thinking? The person who lives with absolute certainty in our ability, mankind's ability to sort of right all the wrongs that we see in our community, in our state, in our nation, in our world. Is that where we should find absolute certainty? In our ability to band together pass policies, make laws, love one another just enough so the world starts to look more positive than negative? That's pretty wishful thinking in my opinion because two people don't agree on half the stuff in their life. How are you going to get millions of people to agree on anything? Who's more wishful? The person who lives with absolute certainty that mankind's ability to right all that is wrong and someday, somehow, enact true, lasting, worldwide justice for the oppressed? Is that where we're at? Or the person who has absolute certainty and hopes in God, looking, for, looking forward to the day when he will come back and when he will judge every evil thought and every evil action and where King Jesus put all wickedness under his feet. There is a difference between absolute certainty in our faith and wishful thinking. There is a difference between what the world believes and what the Christian believes and what they hope in. Our faith is an absolute certainty. It's not wishful. Some of you have relationships with people who are not Christian, and they look at you a little strange. That's normal, by the way. It's okay. It's going to happen. Because they only, 
They don't understand how you believe God is speaking to you through an old book. They don't understand why you put all of your faith and certainty in the word of God as revealed, that reveals his will and his desire for your life. They only see a wishful person hoping it would work out. That's not our faith. That's not the faith Paul praises in the Ephesian church. And this means that our faith is, is not blind. The faith that we have personally and collectively as a church, it's not a blind faith. It's not like we're stepping off the cliff hoping God's hand is there. Christians don't step into the unknown just hoping what the Bible says is true. It's been imprinted and planted in our hearts and our minds that it is absolutely true. We know God is always there. He never asks us to jump off the ledge and hope that he, you know, wonder if he's going to catch us. The faith possessed by the Christian is not naive. The faith we have once delivered to the saints is rooted in who Jesus is. He is the eternal word of God. He is the one who belongs in the deepest and closest space with God. Our faith is in Jesus, the one who shows us the clearest reality of who God is. That's why Jesus, when he walked the earth, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And they flipped out. They didn't know what to do with that statement. That's a big statement. If you've seen me, you've seen the one who created all things. Yes, that's what he says. Later in Hebrews, he says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and he is the exact imprint of his nature. When you see and hear and read about Jesus, you are seeing God. Jesus is truly God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten. He was not made. He is one with the Father. Jesus is God. He is the foundation of our faith. Our faith is in Jesus, who is one with the Father. He is the very imprint of God, which means if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Just the last week, we realized that when Jesus spoke to his friend Thomas, he said, man, blessed are those who believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. That's us. Blessed are we that although we have not seen Jesus with our eyes, we believe. This means our faith is a matter of trust. This means we have to trust in the faith that we have. This means faith requires your trust and my trust. We trust in what God has revealed to us. We trust in what Jesus has promised us. And so did this church in Ephesus, which is why Paul can say, because of this reason, because I've heard of your faith and the love you have for one another, I never stop giving thanks for you, Ephesian church. I never stop praying for you. So we can ask ourselves, what has Paul heard about their faith? In verse 15, because I've heard of your faith. These, these words are simple. They're not a transition. They're, they're, they're simple, yet they are deep. Because when Paul writes this letter to the Ephesian church, he's in a Roman prison. He's been already arrested for preaching about Jesus, speaking about Jesus, and leading people to the cross of Jesus. The Roman Empire arrested him. And it's been maybe five to six years since he was first in Ephesus starting this church. So he's five years removed. He's in prison, yet he hears of how this church has strong faith and a love for one another. This should challenge us. What are we to be known for? What do we want to be known for as a church? Although they lived in a hostile environment, the Ephesian church, they were faithful. Although the Ephesian Christians endured persecution, Although they were attacked, pushed aside, lied about, ridiculed, arrested, they remained 
faithful. They remained faithful. And let me tell you how you remain faithful when all those things happen. It's because you have an absolute certainty in your faith. It's not wishful thinking. Wishful thinking fails you every time. It'll fail you every time. Wishful thinking does not have the power to carry you through cancer. It does not hold that power. Wishful thinking doesn't carry you through grieving process and the death of a loved one, the lack of employment, or the failure of yet another relationship. Wishful thinking will not get you through those things. Wishful thinking will not raise the level of morality within our society. It will not raise the expectations of how we treat one another in our country. We can't just wish that that's going to happen. We have to have faith in something which directs our every step and every word. The world around us, those who are not Christian, who do not possess this absolute certainty in God, they're just wishful thinking. They're just wishing upon a star. And now we must be careful that we don't condemn them and look at them as otherly and worse than us, right? Because we all once were them before God graciously saved us. But shouldn't this drive you to speak to someone this week that doesn't know Jesus and say, everything else just is a wish. I can show you where absolute certainty is found. Absolute certainty about your life, about your death, about your future. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything else is just wishful thinking. Paul encourages the saints in Ephesus because he knows they have not bowed down to the great idol of Diana that they were saved from, Artemis of the Ephesians. They no longer go along with the world around them, going to the market, buying the idols, bowing down to those idols, wishing to receive some sort of blessing from a statue made of silver. In fact, they no longer worship Caesar, who would have been asking for their worship as the Roman emperor. They no longer look to him as Lord. They look to Jesus as their Lord of their life. They, this means they no longer trusted in any person. Church, they would no longer trust in any person that would ever occupy a seat in government to provide to, provide to us what God can only provide to us. They no longer looked to Caesar wishing for peace and justice and righteousness, but they looked to Jesus. We get so caught up in this, hoping, wishing for the next powerful leader to get us through something. Who is more wishful in their thinking? A group of people who think the next political leader is the person who's going to fix everything? Or the person who thinks every political leader and every leader is corruptible because their mind is corruptible? And we only have to have faith in Jesus because he is the one who will make all things new. Wishful thinking says, why hasn't it happened today? Why didn't it happen yesterday? Maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow it will be better. I just know it. Now I don't know how or I don't know when. But tomorrow or someday, everything's going to be better. That's wishful thinking. And now although more than half of you statistically are glass half full kind of people, that, you're my people, right? That's good. We can find the positive in anything and that's super annoying to a lot of people. Just so, just so you know that. But half of us here are glass half empty, half of us here are glass half full. Just because you're optimistic doesn't mean you have to live a wishful thinking life. 
But that's what wishful thinking does. There's no absolute certainty. It just says, I hope someday, somehow, everything's going to work out. There's a song that was written to summarize this way of life. Some of you will recognize it. Some of you won't, and that's a shame. So I'll try to do my best. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to say the lyrics. It says, rise up this morning, smiled with the rising sun. Three little birds perched by my doorstep, singing sweet songs of melodies pure and true. Singing, don't worry about a thing. I actually tried to write this without singing it, but it's impossible. You do it. You print these words on paper and actually try to just say them. It won't work. You have to sing them. Because every little thing, what? It's going to be all right. That's wishful thinking. I'm singing, don't worry. Don't worry about a thing. Why should I not worry, John? Because every little thing is going to be all right. You're like, dude, do you know what's going on in my life? That's all you have for me? Yeah, because three, three little birds were on my doorstep, and they were perched singing sweet songs and melodies. So don't worry about a thing. That summarizes wishful thinking. Now, great artist, great musician. I'm not knocking that. But this is a song that embodies a wishful thinker. Faithful living, on the other hand, that's wishful living. You know what faithful living says? Although I will suffer and I don't know what's coming tomorrow, I will give God the glory for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. I can have certainty in that. Because he's proven that through the cross of Jesus Christ. I can point to an event where I see God's love. And I can see his grace towards me and his mercy towards me and his, his steadfast love towards me. I can, there is an event in history that proves that. That's faithful living. Faithful living says, I don't know when, I don't know how. Scratch that. I don't know when, but one day King Jesus will return and everything will be made new again. There's an event that God tells us about that. Faith says in a song, here's another song for you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my, our righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. Which song do you want? Which advice do you want? Which lyrics do you want to uphold your life when things begin to crumble? Do you want, don't worry. Now I'm putting a little acting into it. You see, I'm trying to sway you. About a thing. Is every little thing? So you can't even do it. You can't try it. You try saying it when you leave here without singing it. It ain't going to work. Or do you want, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor will hold within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood, they support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. In him, my righteousness alone, I stand faultless before God's throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Which song do you want to characterize your life? Don't worry, it's going to be fine. Or no matter what, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Church in Ephesus was faithful. They were faithful. Church, we should strive to remain faithful. We should be known for our faith in Jesus. Paul says, I've heard of your faith, and that faith has produced a true love, a love for one another and a love for God. 
church should be known for its faith and known for its love. And so making a transition here, speaking about love, you know, it's, it's probably the one of the most misused or abused words of our time. Maybe always has been the word love. It has come to mean all sorts of things. I mean, some are beneficial and a lot of them are not. It has come to be represented in so many ways, many of which are not healthy or true. In fact, in most cases, love is described as some sort of this possessing of a level of passion towards one another, like a physical or emotional response in the way we feel. Now, love can certainly take different forms of expression. But what we must understand is that love finds its truest meaning in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not only our faith finds its absolute certainty in Jesus, our love finds its deepest, truest meaning in who Jesus is and what he has done. Well, this means that the clearest description of love is actually found at the place where Jesus laid down his life for those that God would choose to save. That's the cross. Here's the point. There's one main point, big idea, main point. True faith and true love are found at the cross of Jesus Christ. If we're going to be known like the church in Ephesus was for faith and love, we must rediscover these things over and over again at the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible records Jesus was like, it says he was a lamb led to the slaughter. Yet he did not open his mouth when evil people accused him. He did not fight back when evil people beat him. This is because the love that he had for you. This is because the obedience he was showing his father. He was even obedient to the point where he was going to get crucified. One of the most excruciating ways to die ever invented. The Persians invented it. The Romans perfected it. It was a gruesome way to go. Yet he perfectly obeyed his father. This is where true love is found, this act. And now this confuses us because that's kind of a gruesome act. Because like we call it Good Friday, but it's kind of good and a lot of bad. I get it. But this is where true love is found, which means this may sting a little bit, but that's my job. I'll give you a hug later. Which means if you don't understand or believe or acknowledge the death of Jesus Christ, you cannot truly love another person. That's hard to swallow for some of us. Now, you can show acts of love and of service. You can care for people. I'm not going there. I'm not saying everyone who's not a Christian is fake. Don't listen to them run. I'm not saying that. Love has many expressions. I'm saying its truest and deepest meaning is found at the cross. Therefore, no one can really love another person unless they understand what love has been shown to them. We can't do it. We can try. We can serve. We can't do it. If you don't understand who Jesus is and what he has done, you cannot truly love someone. This is why when you become a Christian, the Bible says your heart is renewed. The, flesh is take, the stone is taken out. The heart of flesh is put in. Your spirit is renewed. You are revived. That's why I've said in the past, you're truly living for the first time. Why? Because now you know what love is. And now you know what grace is. And now you know what experiencing mercy from God is like. And then you know how freeing that is. And then you know the freedom you stand in when you fail. It does not dictate your stance before God. That's a very freeing way to live. It actually produces in us this desire to not fail. Because we know it won't change the way God the Father looks at us. It's not an easy word to receive. It may hurt, but I I would rather people be offended for a minute than damaged for a lifetime. 
cannot truly love another person unless you understand and have faith and believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Why is that statement true? Well, Jesus says himself, John 15, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of your New Testament, chapter 15, Jesus' words. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Here's what I'm going to tell you. This is what you must do. It's a commandment. It's not like a take it or leave it. This is what you have to do, that you love people as much as I have loved you. How have you done that? Then he continues, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He's pointing to what he will do as the truest, deepest meaning for love. He's pointing to his death. He says, you want to really love someone? Understand this. Understand the cross. Because it's at the cross where you see God's love for you. See, you can tell people God loves them, but if you don't tell them he loves them because he sent Jesus to die on the cross and take their place, they don't get the full concept. You can't leave that out. You cannot leave the cross out of the conversation ever because that's the event that points to it all. Sam read for us earlier, love is patient and it's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. This is actually a thing for us to know. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Friends, our world has a problem because every 20 seconds we can't wait for somebody to do something wrong so we can rejoice at how good we are and how horrible they are. It's a disease. You must guard your heart, protect yourself from getting sucked into that because that's not what love does. It doesn't rejoice when somebody else does something wrong. That's not what love does. It's hard. We've got to guard ourselves from doing that. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. A true and genuine church has within it Christians who love other Christians and who love God and who love people because they're image bearers of God. They were created in his image. We must never overlook this. Christians are called to, specifically for this verse, Christians are called to actively love other Christians. This, does, this love does not discriminate. It does not pick or choose which Christians to love or to not love. And there are many examples in the church over the decades where we can say, you all weren't doing that. Exactly. The church has been pretty poor at this, haven't we? This is why it's important for the church to talk about these things first, because here's, here's what the Bible says, that judgment always starts in the house of God. So church, we always examine our own hearts first before we go outside to somebody who doesn't follow God and say, you need to be corrected. No, we need correction first. We are God's people. So if we're not loving other Christians with a true love, we can't expect other people outside the church to love each other. Judgment always starts with us. And so we need to seek that forgiveness first. We need to be reorientated first, and then we can go out. I mean, what do you expect people who are not Christians to live like? Expect them to live like non-Christians. Spoiler alert. Don't be so disappointed. <laughs> because so were we, right? So were all of us at one point until God saved us. Isn't that funny how the church gets so bent out of shape when non-Christians are doing non-Christian things? What else were we hoping for? <laughs> it's a struggle for us to love people, like 
Jesus tells us to love them. It really is. And it's not because we don't know how, because I would say a lot of us actually know how to love. Like, here's an action that you enjoy. Here's a way I can go out of my day to help you. Here's some kind words I can share with you. Those are all loving acts. But we truly have a problem with one, loving one another because we get stuck loving ourselves more than we love other people. In fact, we get told to love ourselves more than we love other people. We get encouraged to love ourselves more than we love other people. Let's take that term, self-love. I'll use another term, and I think it's dangerous. And after the first service, I did clarify just a bit with a few people. So come and see me when, you're, when I'm done. Self-love and self-esteem are very dangerous terms. That's not what we need. We don't need self-esteem. This is a, a, wor- a word that the world has coined in the attempt to make people feel good about themselves, to provide some sort of guidance in their lives. But self-love is dangerous. Self-esteem is truly dangerous because it elevates your needs over the needs of any others around you. It says, I'm the most important person in my life right now. Self-love is dangerous because in your attempt to first love yourself, what actually happens is you alienate people, you push people aside, you need them out of your life because they're toxic, they don't give you what you need, so you don't need them around. Self-love builds up these barriers to people around us. We could say, let me, let me take this a little further. What if Jesus keep, came and he taught self-esteem, self-love? What would the verses sound like? They would sound like, hey, uh, sorry to tell you this, but God sent me, like I'm God, okay, and I'm here because I'm supposed to die on a cross. However, I recently just went to a seminar, and they told me I need to love myself a little bit more. So here's the deal. I'm going to pick five of you, and y'all are going to have to be crucified because I, I just can't go to that cross. I was not instructed to do that. That's not a very self-loving thing to do, to destroy myself for you. So I'll, I'll take five. I mean, four will do. So decide among yourselves. Is that what the Bible says? That's not our story. That's not the story of Jesus. What if Jesus was like, I know I came to the broken and the hurt and the lost, you know, and the sinner and all that. I, I get that. But man, y'all are really bringing me down with this whole lifestyle stuff. I mean, I'm all about loving myself and I just don't need that vibe right now. So I'm going to go over there for a little bit. When y'all get cleaned up, come and find me. When you love yourself the same way I love myself, then we can connect. Jesus didn't say that. Can you imagine if God's plan was to send Jesus, his only son, to the earth so that he can teach us how to love ourselves more? Never will you read that. What if Jesus was like, hey, the two greatest commandments I give to you, love yourself the most and then love God with whatever you have left. It's not what he says. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love people as much as you love yourself. Love people at the same level of care you care for yourself. Consider others just as worthy as you, as you consider yourself. This is a dangerous teaching, and it's not good advice. It's not even good news. You see, when Paul heard among the Ephesians, what he heard is they had a selfless love, that they had a patient kind of love, and the love that didn't boast It wasn't arrogant. It wasn't rude. It didn't push people aside. It didn't insist on its own way. We are called to love one another in this way. We are called to love one another the same way God loved us. And he emptied himself to show us that. 
He emptied himself of his deity. He was God. He humbled himself, put on flesh, and then went to the cross and paid your payment to God. He paid it for you. That's love. Later in a book called 1 John, this is kind of a condemning verse for us. This is a hard verse to swallow right here. It says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever says they're a Christian yet hates other Christians is not a Christian. That's what it says. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and him, in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. Friends, if we are not known for our love, if we don't make that something we actively pursue, what we're simply doing is, is acting like we're children of the light, but really we're just children of darkness. We're no different than anybody around us. If we do not love one another, we are children of the darkness claiming to be children of the light. And then we bring people into that community. And then they show up and they're like, man, I've been hearing so many great things about this church. And then they get here and they get involved in the connect group and they're like, gosh, you guys hate each other. I like my work friends more than I like you. And they're crazy, right? We're people, we're imperfect, we will fail, but we must work at looking different than the world. Not because we hate them, not because we're better than them, but because we've been called to something new. We've been called to display God's kingdom on the earth. What does that mean? Our faith in Jesus and our love for one another. That's our call. Paul highlights that in this church. He's been gone five years. He's in prison. What does he remember? The faith that they had in their Jesus and the love they had for one another. So let's apply this. Two things as I'm close. As we continue to grow as a church, um, as we continue to mature as a church, earlier this year we said, if we had a New Year's resolution as a church, what would it be? And I kind of asked you that, but I had an answer. So I didn't want you to answer. But what I said was, we would display the true characteristics of a church as, 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 you know, as viewed in the New Testament. That's really our calling. We want to model the Christian, the church. And so how we do that is we have a strong sense of faith and a strong sense of love for one another in the world around us, make that visible to them. That's what we want. How do we do that? Number one, we forgive one another. The hardest thing to do in life is to forgive. I don't care what anybody says. That's the hardest thing to do, is to forgive people. It is so hard, we forget to do it. (laughs) It's hard. So if you're a Christian here today, let me tell you what you're called to. You are called to have Let me give you like a little picture here. To have forgiveness baking in the oven, which means it's always ready to take out and hand somebody. It's always ready. It's warmed up. It's there. It's ready to take out and give to someone. You always have forgiveness baking in the oven. You're always ready to forgive the next person who sins against you. Now, that's a hard calling. Some sins are kind of minimal, Things that people do to us, and some are really like change the course of our lives for the worst. I get it. There's some dark things. You guys have some stories and things that I could never even imagine would happen to me. But let me tell you what you've been called to, to forgive. It's the hardest thing to do in life. It's hard. Now, specifically, Paul's talking about people in the church. We, our minds could go to you know, people who are non-Christian and all that. But God says, if, if my church is going to be different, You guys are going to forgive one another like I have forgiven you, which means when, not if, when somebody in this church community sins against you, you should have forgiveness ready to hand to them. Because if it hasn't happened yet, 
you're not involved enough. <laughs> the more you get involved, the more you increase your probability of being sinned against. That's really scary, isn't it? And I just made a case for never to do anything but come to Sunday service and then leave. I know I took, I, I know that was like, I took the risk of saying that. But this place, everyone is welcome and no one is perfect. And what that means is that somebody's going to do something to you that doesn't go against your preferences and that you don't really like, that's actually sinful to you. And they need to say, what I just did, what I just said, how I just acted was wrong. And I, I apologize. And I, w- I want to seek your forgiveness. The Christian is to have that forgiveness ready and waiting. That's what we're called to. Forgive one another. If you haven't been let down yet, just wait. And so while you're waiting, pray that God would give you a spirit of humility. Ask God to give you a sense of peace about the forgiveness you need to offer someone. If you're here today and you've sinned against another Christian, specifically, we'll stick with that. If you know you've done something wrong or said the wrong thing or acted the wrong ways, you need to go and say, I'm sorry, is there anything that I can clear up? I had to learn this the hard way. I, uh, you know, starting a church from scratch when you have really good people around you is not really that hard. So we had, you know, early in the early days of this church, thinking about what it would be like, I had tremendous people surrounding me. This church is not me. I'm just higher than you on a Sunday morning, right? That's it. I'm, a, I'm just a few feet higher. But we had a lot of tremendous people. And there, you know, you get 22 adults and 32 kids wanting to plant a church. Nobody agrees on pretty much anything, okay? That's just the way it is. That's normal, by the way. If you didn't know that, having a disagreement is completely normal. The other person is not that crazy for not thinking like you, just so you're aware. It's normal. We're all people, right? We all have our opinions. Well, when, when something would happen, we'd like have this change of direction or I'd screw it up once again. I'd usually say, hey, are you okay? Everything good? And they'd go, yeah. And then I'd say, is there anything that I need to seek your forgiveness for? Did I sit like... I know that I might have done something or made a direction or changed a decision, and I probably I did that the wrong way, but did I sin against you? Did I truly sin against you? Because if I did, I need, I need to seek your forgiveness. Friends, that's what we should be doing to one another. Now, don't like walk on thin ice, they call it. You know, don't always wonder if you're offending anybody because a lot of people are offended at everything. It's just normal. I mean, I'm offended by a lot of stuff. So there's a difference between being not happy with something and being sinned against. But what if that was a language we used? Hey, do I need to seek your forgiveness for anything? What if that's what we did? That's what a church would be known for. That's where you could have real relationships with people that they know all of your liabilities and they still love you. That's a powerful thing. You see, outside here in the wishful thinking community, if somebody knows your deepest, darkest secrets, not only do they not want to be around you, they'll go share it with anybody they can because they just like to do that. We're not going to do that as a church. We're going to know each other's liabilities and then say, yeah, you should hear my story. (laughs) Of course I'll forgive you. Why? Because the cross shows us the truest meaning of love. The act that Jesus did provides us that truest meaning of love. That's where we find our forgiveness. And then the second one. No matter the situation, the best advice The best counsel you can give anyone in this church, or anyone in your life for that matter, but specifically Paul talks about the church, so we're kind of sticking within our community here. You have to point someone towards the cross in all things. Push them towards the cross. Point them towards the cross. That's where you push them to for any counsel they would ever need. 
Now, you can't always just give the Sunday school answer, right, when you're a kid, like, what's the right answer? Jesus, you know, to everything. So if somebody comes to you with a problem, you're like, just look to the cross and walk away. That's not very loving. That's not going to help. But what I mean is your speech, your motives, your heart should be saying, what does the cross say about the situation? What does what Jesus has done, what does that do to this situation? What does that do to your life? What does that do to the way you think now and the way you feel and the way you operate? That's what I mean. May we never give counsel in this church to anybody if it's not seasoned with the cross of Jesus Christ. That is our theology. That is what we are about. That is what every church should be about, is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we find find the freedom from our sin, the cleansing of our heart and our mind, and that's where we see God's truest love revealed to us. Is that the cross? So as we continue to work and work alongside one another, invite our friends to church, run events, do Sunday worship, serve one another, suck up 300 gallons of water in the middle of the night. As we, as we still do these things, not the middle of the night, it's kind of like early morning. By the way, that's what happened over there. Um, so we do these things. We must have the cross in the center of it, and we must be ready to forgive one another. So 20 years from now, people say, oh, I know that church. Weird name. But they, they have faith, and they have love for one another. I've never met a church like that. I've never met a church who is so absolute certain about what God is telling them. And I've never experienced a church where although they're so imperfect and they're a little weird, they really do love one another. What if we were known for that? See, if we're known for that, that's actually what will change our community. But we have to start here first. Does that make sense?